0: Don Rahul Jimenez. Hi amateurs, that? Like, you don't even see that down the park. If they, if they lose, it feels great. Content.
1: The with
0: your head? I am supporting every team that feels break.
1: I'm not making a documentary this year about how shit my
0: club is. Mudman, thank you as always. Who would you rather lose it to, by the way, me or Johnny? The somebody's <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sports Babble European World Football Show. We haven't really got a name for this podcast yet, so we'll just call it the bonus one. It's myself and The Brains, Patrick, uh, are going to be talking to Will Downey. Hello, Will, how are you?
2: Hi, Philip. Hi, Patrick. Nice to be on with you.
0: Uh, Will obviously is a commentator and a, a presenter on all the things sports. Um, he runs the Ash Sports Net and he commentates currently on Belgium and Poland League, among other things in the football. And that's what we've got Will on because he's going to educate us on all things Belgium and Poland, tell us who are the rising superstars and why the leagues are fantastic. Is that right, Will?
2: Absolutely. Educate you. You should be so lucky. <laughs>
0: um, so before we start, uh, I ask, we ask our guests this all the time, what got you into sports, commentating and sports broadcasting?
2: Well, it's something I always wanted to do. Um, I guess from when I was nine years old, a lot of things happened that particular year. I was given a radio cassette recorder for my birthday, for my ninth birthday, and I just started, you know, doing dummy commentaries off the TV on it, there weren't, there wasn't a lot of football on tv at the time certainly not live football but then down where i'm from uh, in waterford like we on rte got quite a lot of live football saturday afternoons three o'clock from the then first division and from the fa cup my dad also started writing for the local paper that year and i just thought that was a fantastically cool job because i i think i'd worked out at that stage i wasn't going to be a footballer i think most <laughs> kids at one stage want to be either a footballer or a fireman or a postman or something like that. And um, I just, I I think I knew that I didn't have the necessary skills, but I was noticing then that it was pretty much the same voices that would be appearing on TV and on the radio, because I'd started listening to the BBC radio football coverage, which was on, Radio 2 at the time and that was a magnificent discovery as well and I started reading Match and Shoot and that's all pretty much within six months of each other just one interest grew into the other and I would say pretty much from there I started writing for the local paper myself on schools matches a year or two later um, there was a school teacher Ronan Kalou who asked us to write something just as a, a little project he gave us a week to do it about Our local hurling team, Villiers Town, as they were at the time, reaching the county hurling final. And as it turned out, the captain of the team, Pat Landers, was one of my dad's best friends. So I just went over as a, I don't know, nine or a 10-year-old and interviewed him. Uh, One question, one answer, (laughs) that was it. But it it kind of impressed them enough so that I started doing reports on the school's matches for the local paper. They were very, very rudimentary. I'd also do other reports that would be pinned up on the notice board wall because I think there were very few kids in we'll say fourth fifth and sixth class in primary school who didn't play for the for the local school team and i was one of them but i was massively interested in sport so if i wasn't going to be good at sport then i I would still be going to the games and watching but i would be sat there on the sideline with my notebook and then it just spiraled from there the local juvenile team um needed a somebody to do match reports for them. So I started doing that when I was at the age of 14. My dad was still writing for the local paper. So I succeeded him in that job. And it it just basically went on from there. Went into local radio when I was sort of 18, hospital radio, then community radio, then local radio proper. Uh, Got noticed by INN, the national radio news network that unfortunately are no longer around. Moved up to Dublin at the age of 23. And that, it just it just went on from there. I got spotted by a sports production company who made different TV highlight shows that went out in different channels. Setanta opened up their sports channel in 2004 in Ireland. And my voice appeared there at the opening weekend, the first day, first couple of days, there were different shows on with my voice on them. And then they said, OK, we like the sound of you. Can you do some stuff for us? And, and literally, you know, pretty much 16 years... I've been appearing on TV, but having been on radio for a long time prior to that as well.
0: That's quite the story. Like, um, <laughs> thanks. I know, I, I know um, Patrick's one of my best friends. So I know he, has, he still harbors a dream of being a sports writer, and he's a very good writer when he puts his mind to it. Like, so to hear you do that and then progress on. Did you have. Um, or do you have a broadcasting hero? Mang is, and I, I actually knows this because BBC and I uh, scundered me one, one day and told him it would be Ian Dennis, my commentating hero. I, I love Ian Dennis on the radio. I just think he's, I actually love radio commentary as well. Like, I think it's, it's just, it's a, such a skill. Um, yeah. Did you have one growing up then that you.
2: I did. I had a few actually. Um, and I guess BBC Radio would be a good. Starting point because like when I was young, when I got that you know my own radio instead of you know Nicky my dad's one uh, to listen to football, like I really got into listening to uh, BBC Radio football particularly, and and not just that, but you know all their coverage of all sports, like hearing tennis on the radio for the first time, hearing athletics on the radio for the first time, swimming on the radio for the first time was just mind blowing because obviously. You know, growing up listening to RTE radio, they did a lot of, you know, live Gaelic games, not as much as now, obviously, where pretty much every game you can find live somewhere and Mm -hmm. a little bit of live soccer on a Sunday afternoon. But, I mean, nothing could beat, you know, a a Wednesday night, a midweek cup tie, something like Manchester United against Liverpool. There's 60,000 at Old Trafford, and you've got someone like Peter Jones, who I thought was absolutely magnificent, my Uh most favorite radio commentator of all time. Everything about him, there was the voice, there was what he said. It was, I think as he phrased it himself, the light and the shade, the way that, you know, the commentary would be bouncing along and then suddenly something dramatic would happen and the voice would raise. And then at other times he would be saying so many interesting things. If it was a bad game, you would still be gripped. You would still be interested listening to him. Uh, That was at a time when there was him, there was uh, Ron Jones, Brian Butler. Like, Ingham and Green were... reasonably young and, and starting out in radio commentary at the time ian dark was on as well and a magnificent athletics commentator he was too and obviously john rowling succeeded him so i would say from that point of view peter jones but also barry davis and jimmy mcgee i would say would would be my three all-time favorite commentators right now i'm a massive fan i would say of peter drury john champion and steve yes. wilson for me i think those are the three best TV football commentators around. And in terms of presenters, I love Mark Chapman. Kelly Cates is fantastic. And I have a lot of time for Mark Pugach. And those three, as equally fabulous on radio as they are, as they are on TV. There's, there's just a sort of a looseness in their style. Absolutely nothing can phase them. I remember when the lights went out at the Super Bowl, when Mark Chapman was hosting, and I might even have been the first Super Bowl he hosted around 2011, 2012, um, because... That was back in the day when I would be able to stay up every Sunday night and watch NFL. <laughs> it's not so easy for me now because I've got a couple of Terriers in the house. So you'll probably hear in the background every every now and again. Um, I, I think he's fantastic. Uh, like He is this generation's Des Lynham, who for me, by the way, is the best sports presenter of all time. Um, like I was only able to pick up BBC TV uh, in my part of Ireland from around 1987. The signal was coming in perhaps from Wales four or five years before that, but a whole load of boosters were put up in my area. So then you could finally, with the right aerial, pick up BBC TV and just a a style of TV coverage that was, I think, above and a bit more sophisticated than what we were getting on RT at the time. But I mean, in saying that, RT used to show match of the day every uh, Saturday night. They used to show a lot of elements of Grandstand and World of Sport as well. And they used to show the big match as well some Saturday nights when when they had the rights. But that might just be slightly before your time. But um, I, <laughs> yeah. as you probably heard, I, I do have quite a few uh, broadcasting heroes. Like Jimmy McGee, who was on Irish yeah. television right yeah. up until his death a couple of years ago, was utterly fantastic because and you could say the same about Barry Davies, you could say the same about you know, John Champion, that Peter Drury is—they were never phased if the remarkable and the ridiculous happened. They would be able somehow to dig a phrase out of their heads at no notice that would perfectly sum up the craziness of a particular situation. And like Jimmy McGee came up with so many magnificent, spontaneous lines, and he, he was an exciting commentator to listen to because, again, it was the voice. And what he did with it. And it didn't matter. You can say the same about Barry Davis, too. It wouldn't matter if he was commentating on football or athletics or weightlifting or field hockey or ice hockey, gymnastics in the case of Barry Davis, and obviously did a lot of the other sports I mentioned as well. He was an expert on it. He was an expert on everything. You trusted him. If something came out of his mouth, you knew that he was absolutely right, which is an amazing gift.
0: Uh like I know and Patrick's gonna jump in here now with his own questions. Mark Chapman is he's our guy, Patrick, like isn't he? We both adore him.
1: Oh ab- absolutely. He's ab- just uh, as as you say, Will, absolutely unflappable. Uh you know, he could commentate on people or he could uh you know talk about people putting the bins out and, and he would make it entertaining and yeah he's just absolutely fantastic and a lot of the people you mentioned there are just broadcasting giants that um <laughs> yeah. you know we've grown up with as well and loved listening to um, and oh, it, soo- it sounds it sounds like you well you know from the age of, of of nine sort of had a had a career path sort of mapped out for yourself and uh, you know you ho- obviously have honed your skills over the years and, and have a, an absolutely you know heaps of experience and a, and a remarkable cv um i suppose what i was going to ask you Will, was um you know, when was the first time that you were sort of thought, yes, I, I've met it, or that you became sort of nearly overawed with where you were and nearly like a pinch yourself moment? Uh, can you recall any time like that?
2: It's hard to know. I mean, sometimes there'll be that there are sort of little steps along the way, sort of little achievements that you manage. So I guess even when I was working at you know, a small scale local radio station in Yall, which was the one nearest to, to where I'm from. And they expanded their sports coverage. I was doing little bits for them pretty much again from day one, when I was still going to college. And like a lot of my early years, a lot of the work that I was talking about when I was young, I didn't get paid for. I did it simply for the love of it because it was at a level where you just do it, you don't get paid and that's it. But they asked me to start doing commentaries, which I really enjoy doing and I mean, I was about 19 or 20 at the time, and it's a good place to learn because you know that the entire locality is listening to you. You are kind of famous on an ultra local level, <laughs> but it kind of gives you the confidence because nobody outside of the area is really listening to you at all, like no- This was before radio stations were broadcasting online. It's something which has obviously exploded the last 10 years or so and all the other things that come along with it. Um, But if you're working on an ultra-local level, then fine, you get well-known locally. But nobody else outside of that knows you, so that you're constantly trying to show people, when you're that age and when you work at that level, you're kind of trying to show everybody else what you can do. So, like, I ended up working in local radio... Uh, countywide county local radio in Waterford and then in Wexford, then got picked up by INN, which was the national service. And I would guess every step along that way, you'd kind of, you'd pinch yourself a little bit saying, wow, well, this is really good. But I guess working on my first Olympics and seeing Usain Bolt break the 100 metres world record is, is something that is as special as it gets. And probably working at the World Cup in 2006 in Germany for INN was sort of very welcome as well, because you kind of think, well, I mean, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm at a game that I know the entire world is watching. It's like the latter stages we'll say of the Champions League. There's, there's very little, like, Liverpool against Manchester United is a big deal, obviously, but if it's up mm. against, we'll say, Club Rouge against Anderlecht, or if it's up against let's say, Bayern Munich against Borussia Dortmund, well, those are the big deals in those particular countries at that particular time. Yes, they'll be interested in what the scoreline is at Old Trafford or Anfield, but not everybody's watching the same thing. It's only when you reach the latter stage of the Champions League, you know, the World Cup finals, the Olympic athletics, the Olympic swimming, like those are the events that you know everybody in the world at that point in time is watching. And when you're at an event like that, that's when you think, okay, I, I think I've done all right.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> it must be such a thrill to, to get those opportunities, especially something as as special and go down in, in history, like you see in both... Um, you know, winning on his goals. Was that was that Beijing that one that uh, That was
2: Beijing, yeah. Um yeah. like obviously there was the the hundred meters record broken there and then the following year in Berlin I was there when he broke the hundred, the two hundred and probably the relay world records. I think I saw every <laughs> single one of Usain Bolt's world records apart from the very first one, which from memory was done at the Jamaican championships. And I mean if you weren't Jamaican and if you were at it then you planned ahead really, really well, because he, he turned out to be fantastic. <laughs> I remember him running, and I saw him run in the two previous World Championships. I've been at eight World Athletics Championships as well, because it's, it's, again, it's one of my main sports, but it's one of my favorite sports. It's one of the sports that I absolutely loved growing up. And, like, Bolt went out, I think, in the semi-finals in Helsinki in 2005, and his name struck me. Bolt, what a great name for a sprinter. In oh seven, like, he got to the final, and I think actually was probably silver medalist behind guess it would have been Tyson Gay by that stage. So, yeah. you, like, you could see the rise coming, but I don't think any of us anticipated how incredible he, he would end up being. And it was brilliant that at one stage, you know, one of the most famous sports people in the world, you know, bar maybe four or five, uh, maybe Federer, Nadal, Tiger Woods, Ronaldo, Messi. There was probably that six, seven, Serena Williams as well. There, there was... A top echelon of the greatest sports people at any one time, and and he was definitely up there. He he, he was he was mesmerizing to watch. He was it, it was incredible because basically no human
0: being has run that fast before. <laughs> yeah, like when you say, even you just said that sentence there, and I almost went into a daydream thinking about it. Like no human being has run that. Like that is just such a feat, <laughs> like a, a historical feat. And uh, I was trying to think. I know Patrick's been at a lot more sporting events than me, including Super Bowls. So we've seen athletes at the top of their game. I haven't really like. Um, I'm a big fan of motorbike road racing, so I've seen the best road racers obviously in the world. But when you're close to someone like Bolt, are you is there an aura about him then, and, and is there just like a can you feel the greatness sort of in a weird way around him man? Yeah, there definitely is. You don't get it
2: around many people, but you do get it around the greats like that. I mean, I worked at a couple of open championships, uh, including one that Tiger Woods won in Hoylake when he was way clear of the rest. Um, I've been at a few Jose Mourinho's press conferences, done a few Chelsea games. I've seen Ronaldo play and Messi play. And definitely the greats, the ultimate greats definitely have something around them. But I remember working at the again at that two thousand and six World Cup at the semi-final when France beat Portugal and Diego Maradona was commentating for Argentine TV and like he, he was he was on the same row as me. And you try oh. and go down to get, you know, something to drink at halftime or something like that, and you can't because there were hundreds of fans in the gangway just trying to get a photo of this somewhat rotund gentleman wearing this magnificent, spectacular stripy shirt of a hundred colors half the way <laughs> down the road because like Maradona still has that incredible aura, that, that sort of essence around him, And I, I think all of the greats do. And it's not just you know, the fact that they've won a lot, it, it's sort of how they've done it. And as the, as the legend grows, as the successes grow, then kind of the aura, the, sort of, there's, a, there's a self-confidence, not in an arrogant way, but there's just something about the way that they carry themselves that, you know, that greatness is here. That
0: kind of thing. I actually just, as you said, Maradona, it was only highlighted a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it was his birthday, wasn't it? And then yeah. Simon Hughes, the, the Athletic and Liverpool correspondent, mentioned it.
1: So he he was at
0: Anfield when Liverpool played Lille uh, in the Europa League in two thousand and. Is was 10, maybe. And I was at Anfield at that game. And I was in the main stand, and he was in the main stand. But I didn't know this until two weeks ago. But I recall, as Simon pointed out, that there being this scene in the main stand where just hundreds of people were just frozen, staring at the, like flocking towards this person. And I never twigged. No, I just went to my seat with my dad. Never knew anything going on about it. Forgotten this event had happened in the back of my brain until... Simon Hughes had mentioned it, and that's what was going on. Diego Maradona had arrived in at the main stand at Anfield for a ticket to watch the match, and it just caused mayhem because people couldn't really people couldn't get over themselves that this was Diego Maradona, and I was oblivious to the whole thing. So for all I know, I could have walked past him and hadn't realized what I was walking past. And I just I cannot believe I did that to myself and didn't get a chance to go and see arguably oh, in a lot of people's minds the greatest footballer ever do it. But um, yeah, just when you're mentioning him and, that and how he caused the scene, but.
1: It just to... I was going to say, just the, the, the fanaticism around him, the adulation. I was at uh, a game in South America in 2012. It was the Libertadores semi-final. Baca were playing La Bombonera against Universidad de Chile, and me and my mates were in the crowd. We got tickets, and uh, he was there, and there was a banner like I've never seen before, covered a whole a whole end of the stadium with with talking about Maradona, the fans, I think he walked around the perimeter of the pitch maybe before the game. The fans sort of <laughs> letting off fireworks out of their hands, going absolutely crazy. People crying for him. Um, and I was actually fearful. There was crushes. You know, people were moving forward and all. Um, so, uh, you know, he's just a complete god in, in Argentina and in, in Naples, it seems. Just a, what, a, what, a, what a figure.
2: Yeah, I commentated yeah. on that game, by the way. It did the Libertadores yeah. for eight, nine years, yeah, for Premier Sports ah. and... I think that's where I've
0: heard sport. you commentate. There you go. That's where I've heard you there commentate. You go. Small well, because I, I, I was the... listening to a few things and I was thinking, yeah, I definitely have heard well before 100%. When Stefan said about you, and I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll approach well, but I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a few things first so I'm not like being ignorant about the whole thing. And then I was like, no, hang on, I know who this is. I've definitely heard well commentate loads. And then you just said that. That's where I've been hearing you commentate yeah, as well yeah. on Libertadores games.
2: Yes. I mean, sadly, no one has the rights in our part of the world anymore. It's been four seasons now, um, and I I, I absolutely love doing it. I got a call out of the blue very much. I'd just gone freelance. I worked full-time for INN for a long time. I was with them for about 10 years. but So 2008, the planets were aligning, if you like, and it was just the right time uh, to step away from that. I was sports editor there. I'd been sports editor for two years in name, but pretty much... For for five years, but without the title for a couple of years before that. Um, went freelance. I'd done a couple of Satanta Cup games, like a commentator in the League of Ireland for Satanta for a good few years as well. Um, ha- haven't done the League of Ireland since it's crossed over to airsports. And I'd say I'd been freelance for about six weeks and had done a wealth of work the first week or two, but then the next few weeks have been really quiet and i was kind of thinking I, I wonder if i've made a massive mistake here and i got a call from satanta uk whose european football base was in glasgow so they would have done you know league gun and the bundesliga and so mm-hmm. on from studios there but the studio was not operational midweek and they just picked up the rights to the libertadores they'd used the world feed which as you know is the english language commentary that comes yeah. pre-packaged with some events and I tuned in for a couple of games and the world feed was being done by obviously a Brazilian person who was, you know, commentating in a second or his third language and it, it wasn't coming across spectacularly and it it like I I, I would watch maybe ten or fifteen minutes and then Especially with the time difference, it might be about midnight, 1 a.m. It's just, well, it's. I'd love to watch this, but I, I think I'll, I'll I'll just go to bed. And I got a call out of the blue saying, listen, you've been recommended for us. I'm ringing from Glasgow. Um, we've got the rights to the Cup of Libertadores. Not sure if you're aware of it. Don't know if you know anything about South American football, but would you like to do it? And I said, oh, absolutely, yes. Yes, please. Um, and like wow. I did that for Satanta UK for two years. Then sadly, they went by the wayside. Um, Did that then for Premier Sports 2011, 2012. The rights went away then sadly to ESPN and BT for a couple of years, but I still did the Sudamericana for Premier. But I also still did the Libertadores for channels in Africa and Australia, and then the rights came back to Premier for 2015 and 16. But at the moment, the rights don't seem attractive enough or probably just too expensive enough because you're now talking about two-year-long competitions. So perhaps they're looking for a lot more money from there than they did previously, but I absolutely loved working on the Libertadores, and it was definitely worth having many hundreds of sleepless nights for. It, 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 sure. It's just the most craziest things would happen, um, like because the first year that I worked on it was the year that Fluminense came out of nowhere to lift it um to to reach the final but were beaten by Liga de Quito after a you know five all draw across both legs (laughs) but then Fluminense had Thiago Silva then Thiago Neves in the side uh like in 2010 Sandro was there for Internacional and then went straight to Spurs uh Chicharito had been in the Chivas side but it left them just before the final and then 2011 we had probably, for me, what was the most memorable season of the competition because you'd Neymar emerging that year with that Santos team and you know beating Universidad de Chile. They had a magnificent team around the time. They were wonderfully coached by St. Pauli. Most of that team's gone on to really big things in Europe and they went to lift the Sudamericana later that year as well in 2011 and probably when the Club World Cup was played in 2011, you might remember Santos got Thumped in the final by Barcelona. I actually reckon that Liga de Quito at the time were probably the best team in South America, but just didn't peak in the Libertadores competitions, even though they went very far in both, but they did win the Sudamericana. But I, I've just, I have so many great memories of, you know, that time and seeing really talented young players come in who, you know, we eventually saw uh, a lot of, be it in England or or Italy or France.
0: It's, like it's the best club competition going. The uh, yeah. Champions League obviously gets a lot of it because of it's all, it's all maybe the best players, best well-known players. I and mean, we'll put it not to disrespect anyone in the world. And it's the biggest competition, and it's great. Like, but unfortunately, I think we're going to lose that when they get this European Super League coming down the line. But uh, for pure entertainment, and Patrick, no, he's been to a semi-final and just utter chaos. There's nothing touches it. To the couple of the doors, it is just like that. Like there's a. It's two years to the day since the first leg, I think, of um, Baca v. River. Mm. Like, do you remember that? Like that, and, the, and, that and then had to move that to Madrid and how that caused nothing but a shambles. Like, But just the whole story behind. I, I I love Argentinian football. And I, I, one of my things is I want to get to Argentina. I have a son now. Finn he's eight months old. And I want to take him to all these games. And I want to get him. We go over there and see game. I want to go and experience all this because it looks mad. But... I knew, well, I'd heard you commented <laughs> on a few other things other than just recently. I knew I'd heard you before. I knew i recognized that voice before. Um, so you commentate a lot now on uh, the Belgian League and the Polish League. Um, we're going to, if it's okay, focus tonight on the Belgian League, if that's okay. Um, Belgium, the scene of producing just superstars, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, Eden Hazard's come to Courtois on that. Um, uh, Prayat and Telemans obviously uh, at Leicester are doing really well. The Donkers doing really well at um, at Wolves, and, and so like people will always look at the Dutch league and, and different things as the this hotbed of talent. But clearly, there's something in the Belgian league. What is it that keeps bringing these young players through? Because we saw Doku going to to Rennes, and obviously Jonathan mm. David going to out of the league. So How good is the league? I mean, the league's excellent, and like, I've been fortunate enough to be working on it for 10
2: seasons now. I, it's, um, I, I guess, the 11th since I started in the summer of 2010, and that was just for the old Satanta Africa Channel was doing a couple of games a weekend. But, I mean, I saw within a couple of weeks that there was a really brilliant pool of talent there, and the wheels seem to have got a motion around the mid Naughties. they had a review of belgian football very similar to what was done in germany after the failure of of euro 2000 where germany didn't get out of their group and belgium had been qualifying for major tournaments quite regularly but then it sort of dried up a little bit around 98 2000 2000 they were sharing the hosting duties with the netherlands and neither got out of that group uh, so it was around 2005 when they decided to build a a, a proper structure and you can't build a proper structure without it focusing mainly on the youth. They got really good cooperation from the clubs because obviously the clubs are going to benefit as well because they would be the ones who'd be producing the talent. I suspect there was something very similar there prior to that, which is what we've seen in Ireland. Whereas if if a good player comes through at the age of 15 or 16, then they get, a lot of the time they get plucked away and they end up going abroad and it doesn't really help their development because the people who are most interested in developing the player would be involved in their own national setup. The Netherlands was a massive success because of building blocks laid largely by Johan Cruyff. He got a really good youth setup going at Ajax, replicated that then when he went to Barcelona the tentacles of that obviously spread around the Netherlands. So now there is very much a, a Dutch philosophy, which was built a, starting, if you like, with that very successful, talented team of the mid-70s. There is you know, the Dutch way, if you like, which is 4-3-3. I remember talking to Curtis Fleming um, when he went and he did his... Uh, went for his pro license. And you have to go abroad to a particular club and study how they do things. Now, he went to FC 20 which obviously is in the air of a Z, but a lot of what they do there has been replicated in Belgium. And if you like it kind of seeped down by osmosis south of the border, Belgium, having seen the way things that were the, the successful way that things were done in the Netherlands, how they were getting lots of very successful young players through and Belgium had had success with that previously, but fleeting, it was sporadic. There was no actual plan there. If they got players through, they were basically striking it lucky, um so what ended up happening in the in the mid noughties was they they formalized a lot of things. there was a lot of talent spotting that was done um and clubs were encouraged to nurture players as much as possible and the a big difference that I noticed between Belgium and Poland working on those leagues intensely now this year is that in Poland, the same thing still happens if a good player comes through. He'll break into the first team, but he'll get sold immediately, whereas in Belgium, they want to hold on to their best players for as as long as possible. It's it's a strategy that they want to get all of the clubs having very strong uh, scouting, very strong talent spotting that the best talent will go through the Belgian clubs, uh, the best Belgian talent will go through Belgian clubs, but more importantly, will stay there. Because, I mean, Aidan Hazard being a case in point, he's one who developed across the border in Lille and you know had been a junior in Belgium but had uh, had moved across. Whereas now, because of the strong coaching that they deliberately have, At youth level, at all the different clubs, the likes of Club Bruges and Anderlecht and Standard Liège and so on, you'll always see a 16 or a 17-year-old. If you see a new name, a new young name on the bench, and I can give you a new new name from the weekend who this happened to, you're guaranteed that they're going to come on. Whereas, let's say in the Premier League, if there's an 18 or 19-year-old, a new name that you see on the bench, you know, it's 50 to 1, 60 to 1. that they'll come on and it's very unusual frankly in the English league I know Chelsea had to do it under Frank Lampard last season because of the transfer ban and occasionally someone like Klopp will throw a bit of a googly Ferguson had to do it obviously in the early to mid 90s but it is quite rare for in England for example for young talent to come through to get on the bench and to get games very quickly. Whereas in Belgium, they're encouraged to do it. And, and the fan base loves it as well. You see it in the Netherlands, you see it in Germany. Certainly you, you're now seeing it in Poland in the past few seasons because it's a local player. It's somebody yeah. who's probably a fan of the club. They get on the bench as an 18 year old and they get in the team. And if they're good, if they have a couple of good runouts, then they'll start. And the, and moreover, they will be in the first team for two or three years. And then obviously a bigger club from a bigger league will come along. And as is the case with Doku, as is the case with uh, Jonathan David, who's Canadian, but who was very much developed in Belgium from the age of around 17. Um, then they go for very large transfer fees. Who,
0: who was the young player at the, at the weekend?
2: Young player at the weekend. Right. Uh Hugo CK of Standard-Liege, he'd come on a sub at halftime against Lech Poznan when Standard were playing quite poorly. I watched a lot of that game because uh, I watched a lot of the Dundalk game and I watched a lot of uh, Lech against Standard because I know those two clubs really very well. Came on at halftime, there were two one down, and if I'm not mistaken, the cross for the third goal, a very simple tap-in, actually came from his side. He's a right-back. He started... Um, at the weekend, which I thought was very interesting for Standard Liege away at Antwerp, uh, they both had problems with coronavirus. Uh, Standard were down, I think, ten or eleven players at the weekend. So Philip Montagnier, who came in in the summer and who's you know definitely been around the houses a lot in terms of the jobs in the countries where he's worked, he gave him a start. He was obviously impressed enough with the forty-five minutes. CK was a little unsure of himself. At first, he, he basically didn't leave the immediate right back area. He was concentrating on defending. But once he was getting the tackles in and he was winning most of them, so his confidence on the day grew and he put in a really good performance. And then he started attacking down the right and he, he looked fantastic. So it's it's brilliant to see a player's first start, his first proper first team debut, his league debut, and you know, almost be man of the match. He was, he was fantastic. Now, Standard didn't win in the end. They drew one all against Antwerp. They've, I think they've only won one win in six games, but they have lost a lot of their squad lately through coronavirus. and Elect were in the same situation a few weeks ago. They played through with 11 players out with coronavirus at one stage, which should, should have been enough for them to trigger postponements two weeks in a row, but they decided <laughs> to keep playing. Uh, drew against Neupen, lost, then thumped really by... Club Bruges. but I mean Club and Anderlecht are, are also clubs where if a good talented 19, 18 or even 17 year old comes along then they're in the side.
1: Yeah and obviously a question just well linked in with that sort of younger players and uh, and the development of talent. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago and it was about how Belgium um, you know took a different approach to maybe players who were maturing a bit later and tried to restructure their youth programme in a way that some of the players who were maybe late to grow weren't denied opportunities. Um, is that still a fixture in Belgium youth football where they sort of try and eliminate the age bias?
2: Yeah, it definitely is because you can discover a gem sort of quite late in their careers. the The kind of players who I love working on in Belgium are the ones who've been around for quite a long time and who may have been tempted away, but who ultimately, for one reason or another, decided to stay or, you know, went away for a couple of years, did well, but wanted to come back. Um, so with the likes of Club Ruse, for example, you've got Hans Van Aken and Ruud Vormer, who've both been Football of the Year in recent seasons. They've both been the top assist maker in recent seasons as well. Now, Vormer is Dutch. He played with... Uh, Rhoda and Feyenoord and came down south about five, six years ago. Uh, Vanaken could have been tempted away by West Ham, uh, decided to stay, got rewarded by a large contract. Um, Mignolet as well is back playing in Belgium now and goal for Club Rouge and also could have gone to West Ham in the summer, but club worked very hard to hang on to him. Um, and it's not just Belgian players, but the likes of Leo Rafailov, who's been previously at Club Bruges, uh, now at Antwerp. He's probably in his early 30s now, but another sensational player. They 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 look after the players very well. I mean, there's only 24 professional clubs, and even if you don't make it at the likes of a Club Bruges or at an Andelect or at Standard or Ghent or Genk, definitely lower down in the top flight, someone like, we'll say, Waslands or you know, Zulter Warrigham, someone like that will have an opportunity of giving you a go. You'll still be good enough. I mean, the league is very good. It is very strong. They're eighth in the coefficient at the moment and the live table, they just dropped down to ninth last weekend below the Netherlands. But you can still, you know, go down to the second flight and someone like you know, Westerlo or Lierse or Union Saint gilloise or somewhere like that. And you can still have a good career there. And if you're good enough, well, you come back up into the top flight.
1: So they're close enough to getting a, a, a like a sort of being part one for the Champions League um, mm. draw then? So yeah, yeah, the yeah. Sports. No regularly. Yeah.
2: they have I mean, for all the time I've worked on Belgian football, they've had two teams in the Champions League, the champions going mm-hmm. into the group stage automatically. The second-placers, the runners-up, going through the qualifiers. And even if they don't always make it, then usually the runners-up will end up in the group stage of the Europa League. Obviously, that system changes next season. The cup winners will go straight into the Europa League. There are still four out of the five Belgian sides still in Europe. Unfortunately, last week they all lost, which is why suddenly they fell below... The Netherlands and there's a little bit of worry. See, it's interesting because like the the company doing the Belgian League world feed changed in the summer. So now it's the broadcasters who are doing it for Belgium are also now providing the world feed. So I'm working for them now as opposed to you know being based with uh, you know Satanta in Dublin. But they will lose a lot of points next summer because a lot of clubs did very well. Three of them reached the last 16 of the Europa League in 2017 and they lose those points next year. So there's a fear they could fall down to around 14th or 15th and then suddenly they're not guaranteed to be automatically in the group stages of anything. And that's what they're quite worried about. And it's interesting now that I work alongside quite a few extra Belgians than I would have done before. (laughs) I mean, before I would have worked alongside no Belgians. It's interesting getting... A perspective from crew who are you know fans of the different clubs and that the coefficient is very, very important to them. Like uh, I always well. referenced it when I was working on you know the Belgian league in the previous years out of Dublin. Like I mentioned the coefficient because the belt you know Belgium do punch very much above their weight. They usually will get a couple of sides into the knockout stages. And I'd always felt that the coefficient was important from that point of view but to them it is very vital the amount of conversations that mention it um poland is something that i can talk about sometime in the future if if, if you if you ever bother to have me back
0: oh but, we'll have you I back mean, don't worry.
2: the comparisons between the two is really interesting because um i did an interview with tvp back in the summer when they heard that polish football was going to be live on you know, British and Irish television. So, you know, they threw a few questions at, at me and, you know, what leagues would I compare it to? And I kind of compared it to Belgium in in the way that, you know, the young players are coming up. Now, Poland is way down the pecking order. They're 29th, and in the live table, they've fallen to 30th. So, I mean, they're, they're down around the Republic of Ireland. Um, they're down around where Scotland were a few years back, but Scotland have obviously climbed up a lot. Th- a very interesting comparison between... Uh, the Belgian league and other leagues, is actually the transfer values, which I hadn't actually thought of previously, but now that I work with a few of the crew, like Poland will ne- will compare themselves with the likes of Belgium. They've had their two best, best young players sold in the past few weeks, both going to Brighton for five and 10 million, and that's a record for them. The two big transfers that we've had in the past month or so from Belgium, 30 million and 27 million. But from a Belgian point of view, they want to be up where Ajax are because Ajax will sell those kind of players for a minimum of 50 million. And obviously what happens is, you know, 30 million will go to Ghent for Jonathan David. They want to buy other players, so they'll try and buy up a lot of good Belgian talent from other clubs. So the money gets spread around. That's what Norwegian fans and Norwegian journalists said to me before about Rosenberg, because I'd always sort of said to them, isn't it bad? that they're always in the Champions League season after season. Isn't it a case that it might always be that way? Aren't you worried that they'll just get strong and they may end up winning at 19 years out of 20? And where would the rest of the league be there? But they said, well, no, because we're expecting to go wrong for them sometimes. And also, because their players are playing in the Champions League, they'll get a good bit of money for their players. And where the replacement is going to come from elsewhere in the Norwegian league. So all of our clubs end up getting that money that that Rosenberg get for the Champions League. And obviously what's happened now in in Norway is they've gone past that and they're they're back to having a decent competitive league again. And hopefully that ends up happening in a lot of the big leagues in Europe because, you know, as we've seen Scotland, Germany, France, Italy, you know, it's not two or three clubs who are mopping everything up. It's one club pretty much.
0: Yeah, just on the clubs as well. Um, well, and for anyone that doesn't really know uh, the Belgian League, because uh, people mightn't watch it or they mightn't pay attention to it. like That's something weird mm. we do because we're nerds, the sports battle. We will look at it's these good. things and watch it. Yeah, that's, well, you're, you've sold it to me anyway. And I know Patrick's been to a few games. Who are the biggest teams in Belgium? What's the biggest game in Belgium?
2: Okay, so I think there are two biggest games, pretty much. And elect against Club Bruges, and elect against Standard Liege. Um, and elect against Standard Liege is uh, De Classico, and and elect okay. against Club Bruges. So I, I think they did try and put the name of De Classico alongside it um, once once upon a time, but it, it, it's, it's De Topper, if you like, or, or De Classique for some. Um, I mean, the big three clubs are the three I've just mentioned, but in the last 10 yeah. years, not only have those three won it, but. Racing Genk have won it twice, and Gent won it for the first time in their history, and that was kind of predicated by being really well coached. G- uh, Gent had Van heiserbroek there in 2015 when they won the league. Uh, he got them into the, he got them into the last 16 of the Champions League, which was fantastic. And then the following season, the last 16 of the Europa League, and they beat Spurs at Wembley, and knocked <laughs> them out of Van heiserbroek's birthday. Then they got knocked out themselves by racing Genk in the next round Um, Genk themselves had Frankie Vecartan in charge when they won the league in 2011 and I remember doing I think it was Genk's first game first couple of games and their uh, playoff match in the Europa League and they'd had massive goalkeeping problems they were signing a goalkeeper from Hungary I think it was Kuteles, but his papers weren't in order at the time Uh, it was an EU thing so their main first-choice goalkeeper then, the, the replacement, or you know plan B, he was injured. So they had to pluck a 17-year-old out of the youth team. But Thibaut Courtois ended up being quite decent. And he ended up being the main <laughs> goalkeeper of the season. Not only that, Kevin De Bruyne came through that season. Yellow Vossen was up front getting loads of goals. And it ended up being a team of supersize, even though we didn't realize it at the time. And, I mean, Frankie Rakuten was there. He ended up... Uh, leaving right as they were winning the title. And then when they won the title again in 2019 with a really uh, talented side, Trossard was there, for example. It was Philippe Clement who was in charge. And then he was plucked away immediately afterwards by Club Bruges, where he'd been assistant to Michel Prudhomme. And he won the title with them last season. Although last season, it was curtailed. The last round of fixtures in the regular season wasn't played. So the way the playoffs are constructed, by the way, in Belgium is that um, the top six break away. They play each other at home and away, but they resume from half the points they had before. So if at the end of the regular season, you'd Club Rouge on 60 points, you'd Anderlecht on 54 and you'd, let's say, Genk on 50, then they would resume on 30, 27 and 25. I, I remember mentioning this to Ian Barraclough when he was managing in Scotland at the time and he, he hated the idea of it, but. I mean, in many ways, it's a good idea. It's not universally. It's not 100% popular in Belgium. Uh, they've been doing it for about 10 or 11 years now. But it means that you have to prove you're the best team twice over. And like, what's happened on a couple of seasons is that a club has been so far ahead. I mean, they resume in the playoffs with a lead of maybe seven or eight points anyway. And the rest have got 10 games to try and catch them. And more often than not, the side that's top at the end of the regular season will, will win. The first season I actually worked on the Belgian League, which was the 2010-11 season, Anderlecht were top at the end of the regular season, but they, they were sort of limping towards the title. If the season had ended then, they'd have been fine, but they ended up having so many injuries during the playoffs, a massive loss of form, and Standard Liège had crept up into sixth in the final week of the season and had gone on a, a brilliant run then and were only denied the title by Genk, by a draw in the final day of the season when they were up against each other. If Standard had won then, then they'd have won the league, having been, I think, in seventh or eighth with a week to go in the regular season. I think it's a really good dynamic, exciting format. I mean, the grounds are, are generally reasonably tight. The biggest stadium was only around 30 or 35,000, but what it means is that, I mean, the crowds are normally full. And I've mentioned five clubs to you there. I think Ghent and Genk are you know, perennial title contenders not so much this season because they've had bad starts and have ditched their bosses but Charlo have been improving in recent seasons and they've been top for most of this season so far they won the first six games Bearscott are in the top flight for the first time in eight seasons the old Bearscott club had actually gone bust had finished bottom of the table in, in 2013 so they had to go and basically buy another club build their way up from the fifth division of Belgian football and they did that really rapidly and I mean they've been in the top three or four for most of this season whether they'll be able to keep it going is a different story Antwerp are back in the top flight for the last three or four seasons and they've had some very impressive coaches won the cup for the first time in almost 30 years in August the week before this season began so it's it's really it's been an incredible season so far we've had I think the top seven clubs, as I speak to, are only divided by two points. Um, it, I think the circumstances of how the season is, how 2020 is, how football in 2020 is, is going to give us some incredible title races in quite a few countries, and Belgium especially.
1: Absolutely, it sounds very exciting and a, a really interesting, um, really interesting system. Uh, I know that our, our league in Northern Ireland. Uh, have adopted a similar sort of split after a certain point uh, as well. I think there was, um, you know, it's gone down quite well. Attendances have been up. So it's clearly a good a good idea, I think, um, and an interest And structure. Um, I suppose I was just going to ask probably one of the final questions, Will, if, if, if you don't mind. I mm. suppose um, uh, as Premier League fans as well, uh, and Anderlecht who are, you know, as you mentioned, one of the biggest clubs in the country. How, how's the, the, the Vincent Company sort of experiment going there? And, you know, how are the underleg uh, fans feeling about it?
2: OK, well, I mean, if, if you ask me, not very well. Now, they're currently <laughs> lying in seventh place, but they're only two points behind Club Rouge, so they've only lost one game out of their 12 in the league so far this season. Now, uh, Company went there at the start of last season. He'd You know, steered Manchester City to the title in 2019, scored that incredible goal from outside the box that ultimately, you know, edged Liverpool out by a point. And, you know, probably that had been the best Liverpool team since they previously won the league in 1990 and they still couldn't get over the line. So he went there to a big fanfare. He was going to round off his playing career there. He was going to be player manager. And for the first few games he was. I suspect what happened is that Andelec discovered that he didn't quite have the right badges. So, you know, suddenly after about five or six weeks and, you know, they'd won some, they'd lost some. They announced that he wasn't going to be the match day boss. There was going to be Simon Davis who'd come across as his assistant. But things really, you know, the, the wheels really began to fall off at that point a little bit. They were down around twelve, to the 13th out of the sixteen, and Essentially, the boss on match days was a man who had been the youth team coach and the reserve team coach in Manchester City. And that wasn't what Andelect had, had bought into. So Frankie Vercouten was brought in. Davis was, you know, re- he stepped back to being, I think, what was termed as a personal coach or a personnel coach. And then, you know, after another couple of months, he left the club. Frankie Vercouten took over. And with one week to go in the regular season, they were lying in eighth place. They had a really good chance of making it into the top six. They had to win. It was a winner-takes-all game, if I remember, against Genk. And if they could have won that, then Genk were a place above them in seventh. Mechlin were lying in sixth. They needed Mechlin to lose as well in order to get into the playoffs. And if they'd managed that, then they'd have avoided their worst finish since 1938. But, I mean, the season ended. It was cold. Uh, the coronavirus situation came along. They decided, I think incorrectly in my opinion, not to resume the league they did what, you know, France, Scotland and the Netherlands did as well. Uh, So Club Rouge were crowned champions and the league as it was standing, finished there and then. So Anderlecht were in eighth spot. So we go into this season. Anderlecht have won and drawn their first few games. They're looking quite good. And then Anderlecht decide to dispense with Frankie Vecchouten. Vincent Company announces his retirement from playing and that he is now going to be the first team coach. Now, the first few games, mainly they drew, I think it was probably three or four matches before he was able to win his first game. They have been able to use a lot of youth players the last couple of seasons who, who look quite good, but the squad was too big. They, they brought a lot of stars in, the likes of Nasri, Chadley, which didn't quite work. Kamar Roof was decent, but he could have scored a few more goals, um, They've drawn as they've drawn exactly half their games this season. They've drawn six out of their twelve, and yet, despite all that, they're still only two points off the top. So, they can win the league by not playing particularly well. The youngsters they have in the squad are really good, but it may take company another two or three seasons, maybe, to get Andalek playing the way he wants, which is you know the Manchester City style, the Pep Guardiola style, which is. You know, possession based and so on, which is all well and good if you can sign a bunch of players for 50, 60 million each time. But he doesn't have the luxury of doing that at Anderlecht. There is a bit of money in the bank from the deadline day sale of Jeremy Doku to for 27 million. But he's not really going to get much chance to spend it until the winter transfer window opens. And at that stage, they should still be in touch like the way things are at the moment. It's very, very congested in the top half of the table. And I've never seen the Belgian league. I can't recall any league being like that before that I've worked on. Um, the, the jury's out. Definitely the jury's out. Last season, a lot of people were thinking that company probably wouldn't stay, but he has, you know, quite an involvement behind the scenes with Anderlecht. Now he can be on the board if he wants to. He, he may end up being there for life. If he ends up doing a very good job at Anderlecht, of course, you know, you could see someone like Paris Saint-Germain tempting him away. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as permanence in football these days. Um, I mean, some of the kids at, at Anderlecht are really impressive. Like with Doku gone, it's opened the door for Albert Sambi-Lukonga, for example, to have a much more expansive role up front. He's really impressed me this season. Uh, there's also Yari Vasharan, who I think is quite excellent. He plays in a kind of a Doku role as well. He's... In the Belgian squad, he's a regular in the Belgian squad now. He's got six caps. I think he looks really, really very impressive as well. Um, and, like, there's loads of talented kids, if you like, at the main clubs, the main five or six clubs. I don't think the Andelect experiment so far has been an experiment. There's been a lot of change behind the scenes as well. It's all come about from the previous owner of Estender, Mark Cook, who is, you know, one of the main billionaires in Belgium. He, he owns a, a major pharmacy company. He'd achieved a lot with Estender, who are a really small club you know, on the coast. Beautiful place. Uh, I'd worked at a World Cross Company Championships there before. Um, but he could only bring them so far. He got them as high as fourth in the table. Um, he had a really good squad there. He had an excellent coach there in Eve van der Heijen. But the stadium was small. The first season they qualified for Europe. They couldn't play in Europe. They couldn't get a European license for their ground. So they, they sought to extend it a bit. And then they did get into Europe, but they were then knocked out very, very early. And the opportunity came for him. was going to go in the market. And he said, well, I think I'll go and buy them. And he did. Um, but he hasn't had the same success with them. In fact, I think the, the two seasons he's had or the three seasons he's had fully in charge of them, they have finished lower than he managed to achieve in his final two seasons with Estenda. A lot's gone wrong there. It it, it had been under the ownership of, you know, the one family for 50 or 60 years. Basically, pretty much the entire board, a lot of the officials there have been cleaned out. Very few people have actually lasted there. Um, You know, it, it might remind you of a major world figure a president perhaps the way things have been going <laughs> and elect the past a couple of seasons and you know if there's been a uh, a ceo or you know what's known there as a as a club manager what we would probably call as the director of football and uh, nobody's really remained so far they, they they basically need a couple of years of of stability just you know nobody going in or out behind the scenes and being able to nurture the you know, the talented 17, 18, 19 year olds, about 10 of them that they have who played first team football this season and last. And so,
0: well, it, it, it looked, it sounded over here like it was all rosy for company, but obviously, if you highlighted it, it maybe isn't going as well as maybe people predicted. And I thought that's a real interesting insight into, into the changes and the like and what had gone on. Well, I really appreciate that. I um, Didn't expect. Donald Trump, we mentioned in our podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I, there I never I mean, mentioned
2: him. I never mentioned him. You
0: mentioned him. No, now. Yeah. Hopefully, like he, uh, the underdog like, owner will will not um, hire Rudy Giuliani to do any of his um, solicitor work or anything because he, he he causes mayhem. But yeah, that, it's that's really interesting because you would think when company goes in he would just bring in an aura of stability himself but it is interesting to hear that um, and also, great insight into the Belgian league we will get you back on Will to talk to us about the Polish league that's one of the things I'm going to do sorry if you don't want to come back on I'm going to need to come back on it's um,
2: alright it's fine I'm sure I'll have some evening spare I don't mind
0: Thank you so much, Will, for coming on the Sports Bible and talking to myself and Patrick. Um, we both love this; we could do it for hours and hours, like so. It's, it's our thing, so we really appreciate that. And, and you can tell the, the, the listeners where they can catch your stuff.
2: Absolutely. Well, um, I mean, the Polish league is going out on Free Sports and Premier Sports at the moment. It's the second season of a two-season deal, and I'm actually on the after the international break. There are definitely two games live and there may well be a third. The Belgian Pro League at the moment doesn't have uh, contracts in the UK or Ireland, sadly. Uh, there may be, and, and this is just me speculating, I know De are coming into the market in the UK and Ireland in the next few months, and they actually hold the rights for the Belgian League in Canada and Japan. So I'm not saying anything will definitely happen there, but I think there are, there are new players coming into the UK market who are, who are very familiar uh, with the Belgian League. I'm also doing a couple of Scotland games, one for Virgin, one for Free Sports at Cena and under twenty one level in the next week. Of course if this podcast comes out in a couple of weeks, then nobody's gonna hear that. Um, yeah, to but, uh, don't worry, don't
0: worry, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean
2: usually I work in the Champions League and the Europa League for Virgin, but they've they've majorly reduced their staffing on that because of the current circumstances. So yeah. I mean
0: fingers crossed I'm back on that next season. Happy but
2: you, basically you could hear me anywhere, anytime.
0: That's brilliant, Well, Thanks so much for joining, and um, I'll speak to you again soon.
2: Absolute pleasure, boys, and thank you very continued much. Continued success with this. Thanks very much. It's, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I could talk to you for a lot more hours, but
0: who wants to hear that? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we appreciate that, Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>